Let's pray together. Father, in the book of James, you have told us that we are to count it all joy when we encounter trials because the testing of our faith will produce steadfastness and steadfastness is to have its full effect that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And Lord, you tell us that if we lack this wisdom, the wisdom to count it joy when we suffer. We should ask you for this wisdom. For you are one who gives generously to all without reproach. So Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom through your word this morning. Wisdom to count trials joy. And I pray that you would help us to to appreciate the, the way that Moses has served us. And Lord, let us see from his literary genius the way that you have blessed us and the way that you are working an inexpressible genius, an unaccountable glory. You are accomplishing a plan that is past all finding out. So, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to trust you, to wait, to hope, to rejoice, to search the scriptures, and to continue to call on your great name. We ask you to do all this for the glory of the Lord Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 37, where we see the culmination of the book of Genesis. It's as though, as my friend Sam Amati likes to say, all of the major plot lines of the book of Genesis begin to come together here in the Joseph story in Genesis 37 through 50. And not only is it as though Moses is now drawing together all of these various threads that he's been weaving out for his audience, he's also building what is going to come after. So this passage is marvelous. This is an amazing piece of scripture. It's going to open, if you want to look at Genesis 37.1, with Jacob living in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, which in a way sounds the note of the realization of promise. Because the Lord had said to Abraham, to you and to your seed, I will give this land. And so right at the outset of this last section of the book, Moses shows us that parts, aspects of the promise are being realized. But the, this passage, this chapter, Genesis 37, is going to close with the Midianites selling Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So we begin in Canaan and we end in Egypt. And in between, in between, let me summarize the story of what happens here in Genesis 37. And I'm going to try to word this in a way that I not only pick up things that we've seen earlier in the book of Genesis, but also begin to anticipate ways in which this passage will find fulfillment. So in Genesis 37, the father 
sends his beloved son on a mission. I mean, it's almost as though he sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And when he finds them, he is betrayed by them. And I would observe that there are 11 sons of Jacob who betray this beloved son. He is handed over by them to non-Israelites. And he is made a slave, as though he has taken the form of a servant. He is presumed dead, but he's not dead. He is alive. He is exalted to the right hand of power where he rules over the Gentiles. And eventually, he delivers Israel by extending forgiveness to those who wronged him. This passage, what we see here, it not only draws together, as we'll see as, we've, as we make our way through the passage, it draws together the big themes of the book of Genesis. It also anticipates the salvation that God will accomplish in Christ. Because in Christ, the Father has sent his beloved Son on a mission to go and seek and to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And those lost sheep of Israel rejected him, sold him for silver as a slave, crucified him, thought they had succeeded in killing him, but in fact he's alive. And he sits at the right hand of the Father ready to forgive any who will turn and and repent of sin and seek his mercy. All of this is anticipated in in, in the book of Genesis, in the Joseph story. In Joseph, we see an anticipation of the seed of the woman who has become Lord of the world who sits in the place of lordship and uses his authority and power to forgive. This is glorious. So uh, what we'll see here in these first uh, four verses has to do with Jacob's love for Joseph and this special coat that he made for him. And there are lessons here for us, lessons that if we're wise, we will contemplate. We want to be those who, like the the blessed man in Psalm 1, meditate on these things day and night, and we want to get a heart of wisdom from these passages. So after that first verse where we read of where Jacob's living, we read in verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. I didn't talk so much about this last week, but as you've read through Genesis, maybe you notice that once we get one of these, these are the generations of statements, it's almost as though what follows deals with those who descend from him. So we're mainly going to focus on Joseph, even though they're the generations of Jacob. We've really already gotten a Jacob story in chapters 25 through 36. And, and if, you, if you go all the way back to the beginning, uh, uh, Genesis 2, 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Well, we just heard about the heavens and the earth, and we're going to go on to hear about the Garden of Eden and then the sin of uh, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and so forth. We're going we're gonna to go what hap- into what happens in the heavens and the earth. So that's the way these, these, these are the generations of statements seem to work in the book of Genesis. And then we're told here in verse 2 that Joseph, being 17 years old, and you may remember when we looked at the end of Genesis 35... And, and we talked about Isaac's age when he died in Genesis 35, 28. He's 180 years old. He was 60 years old when he had Jacob and Esau. And that means that uh, Jacob, in, at the end of Genesis 35, 
is 120 years old. Uh, and, and by this point, Joseph has already been a slave for 12 years. Joseph's already been enslaved by the time that Isaac has died. And the fact that the narrative is not being presented to us in chronological order tells us there's another principle at work in the organization of the narrative. And um, last week I handed out a sheet of paper that lays out how I think that works. Um, I think maybe there's some still out there on the back table. You know, yesterday I found a stack of those in the trash. I was so, I mean, I know it was a church work day. But I, I walked in the, the glass doors in the lobby, and I looked there, and there are my kaya. That's my beautiful color-coded chiasm in the trash. I pulled them out. And, and I said, who put, I said, my wife probably put these in the trash. <laughs> she loves to clean up. Hallelujah. Anyway, Genesis 37.2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Now, I just want to... I just want to point out here a similarity, and this is going to be one of several similarities between Joseph and Moses. If, if you look over at Exodus 3.1, you don't have to turn there. You can just listen to me read this. Moses was keeping the flock of his father. They could read that, or they could translate that. Moses was pasturing the flock of his father-in-law. So uh, Joseph is pasturing the flock. Moses is going to pasture the flock. And then if you think about what happens with Joseph and Moses, uh, Joseph is going to be rejected by his brothers, sold as a slave, but then he's going to become Lord of Egypt. Moses is going to be rejected by Israelites. He's going to serve his father-in-law out in the wilderness as a shepherd for 40 years, and then he's going to be exalted over Egypt. And no one is going to be more, more respected in all of Egypt than Moses. We'll read in the book of Exodus that, that Moses was feared in all the land of Egypt as he worked those plagues that delivered Israel. So there are these really interesting similarities between Joseph and Moses, and I'll have more, about, more to say about that as we continue. So Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. You'll remember that these are two of Jacob's like secondary wives. These were maidservants that were given to Rachel and Leah, and they each had two sons. And um, Bilhah's sons were, I'm looking for them here in uh, chapter 35. Where did they go? Uh, anyway, Bilhah's sons, it's like Asher and Gad, and then Dan and I think Naphtali. Are, the, are the, the four sons that Joseph is with here. And then we continue in 37.2, and we read that Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Uh, and here I just want to make a comment about family dynamics. Um, does Jacob need to hear how his sons are doing? Yes. Um, is there maybe a better way to communicate that than other ways? Probably so. Is this family fraught with difficulty? Absolutely. This family is a total mess, as we'll see. I don't want to be too hard on Joseph here. I want to lay most of the blame here at Jacob's feet. Look at what we read next. Um, we read there in verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. 
Now we're going to see, well, let's just look at the next verse. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This has been building for years. It has been obvious to everybody as we have worked through Genesis who Jacob wanted to be married to. He wanted to be married to Rachel. And he didn't have much use for Leah and her children. They were, that's great, we got children, but Rachel's the one that I want. And now Rachel ha- finally has a son, and frankly, Jacob, long ago, needs to have gotten over him, himself. Jacob needs to have been a man. He needs to have mastered his emotions and come to the place where he recognizes these women and these children are a gift to me from God. And the thing for me to do, even if I do favor Rachel, and even if I do feel strongly about Joseph, because he's my beloved son of my beloved wife, I need to love these boys, all of them. And I need to to make it clear that everybody here is loved and welcomed so that nobody has any complaint. Well, he hasn't done that. And I would suggest to you that the text shows us from here and what we'll see at the end of the chapter that Jacob has been mastered by his emotions. And he allows his emotions to control him to the point that he does not do what he needs to do. And and I think that he's to be faulted for that. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. We read there in verse 3, because he was the son of his old age, And I would just invite you to think to yourself, have I seen a phrase like this anywhere else in the book of Genesis? The son of his old age. And if you say, yes, I have seen a phrase like that, it's because it's back in Genesis 21. Back in Genesis 21, we read that Sarah conceived in verse 2 and bore Abraham a son in his old age. And then in 21.7, Sarah says, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now what does this do for us? This links Joseph and Isaac. What's the significance of that? Well, Isaac was clearly the seed of promise, wasn't he? And so Moses is saying to us, Joseph is the seed of promise. And that's going to be reinforced by the dreams that we're about to read of Joseph having. So Joseph is clearly the chosen one, but Jacob needs to be a father to all of his children. And Joseph's brothers, you know, if if we just sort of ask ourselves again, we've sort of been asking this this question all through these narratives in the book of Genesis. If, If you're somebody who loves God and you love the promises of Abraham and your brother is identified as God's chosen one, he's, he's like Isaac in the line of descent. That's who Joseph is. How should your heart respond? Your heart should say, well, I'm going to be my brother's keeper. Your heart should say, he's the chosen one. I'm, an, I'm, I'm with him. In a way, you could say you should obey Psalm 2, which, which calls the rebels to kiss the son, lest he be angry and they be destroyed in the way. That's how the brothers ought to respond to Joseph, but they're not interested in that at all. They're, they're, I think it's clear from this passage, they are furious with their father. And they resent the fact 
that their father has loved Joseph in a way that he has not loved them, and they hate Joseph. Verse 5. And this, this next section in verses 5 through 11 deal, deals with uh, the dreams that Joseph has. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And again, you know, I think you could, you could maybe say, well, perhaps it wasn't the best idea for Joseph to communicate this information. And, and I think it's, it's potentially worded in such a way that Joseph comes off sort of declaring, hey, check out what I dreamed. And he doesn't realize who his audience is. He doesn't realize that he's dealing with a really hostile audience. But he declares it to them. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose. And that's a term, that term arose, that's going to crop up in Numbers 24, 17. When Balaam prophesies, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Judah. So for Joseph's sheaf to arise, this is terminology of someone rising to authority. My sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And we've seen this language too before, back in Genesis 27, in verse 29, as Isaac is blessing Jacob. He thinks he's blessing Esau, but Jacob is stealing the blessing. And Isaac says over Jacob in Genesis 27, 29, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. So, you know, this, these events are playing out. Joseph's having these dreams, and Moses is presenting this language so that his audience sees, hey, the same thing spoken to Jacob by Isaac is now being communicated to Joseph by means of the dreams. So Joseph is clearly the chosen one. Verse 8, his brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Now you see how their hearts are responding. Their hearts are essentially saying, Nuh-uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens. You really think you're going to be king? I mean, the Lord is revealing. It's almost as though the Lord is saying, As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And the brothers of Joseph are like the nations, raging, saying, Let us cast their cords from us and throw away their fetters. They're in rebellion. They're in rebellion, not just against this brother that they hate. They're in rebellion against God. And these are the sons of Israel. These are the fathers of the 12 tribes that we're talking about here. And 11 of the 12 patriarchs hate the chosen one. And if that doesn't communicate the mercy of God, I mean, this is, this is, this is the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not a God who says, when you get your act together, when, when you do everything that I've laid out for you to do, when, when you decide that your heart is going to be at a place that's going to be pleasing to me. No, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who says, you see all those people down there, they're in rebellion against me? 
Watch the way I change their hearts. Watch the way I turn them from being people who are ready to sell my chosen one into slavery to being people who are going to be ready to praise him and exalt him and thank him for their deliverance and worship me in response to what I've done through him. That's the God of the Bible. So if you're here this morning and you think to yourself, I'll never be a Christian, no way. This guy can just keep talking. Well, I can keep talking and the Bible can keep working. And, and I would just encourage you to watch out. Watch out. The Lord has a way. The Lord has a way of bringing people to their knees. You can go there willingly or you can go there forcibly. We would encourage you to go there willingly. Verse 8, his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more. In the wording of this in the original, there's a play on Joseph's name. Because you'll remember uh, when, when Rachel had Joseph, she said, may the Lord add to me another son. And so she named him Joseph. And, and Joseph's name is this adding uh, term. And it's not, it, now it's like the, the, it's worded, uh, they added to their hatred of him. They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. We continue. There's a second dream. Now, Moses doesn't say this, but there's another character later in the Bible. It's, it's just remarkable the way that these patterns of events keep happening. There's another character later in the Bible, Daniel, and he's going to do the same thing that Joseph's going to do. Uh, Joseph is going to eventually interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar had the same dream twice. And Daniel said to him, the, the doubling of the dream is about confirmation. This is certainly what the Lord is going to do. So I think we can say, okay, Daniel has rightly interpreted what, uh, what, what was happening with Joseph having essentially the same dream Twice, the doubling of the dream says, this is certainly what God is going to do. Verse 9, he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Notice the bowing down language in verse 7 and now again here in verse 9. And if you were here uh, recently, we read Genesis, um, not Genesis, we read Revelation at the other end. We read Revelation chapter 12, and you'll remember that John saw this, this vision in heaven, and this woman, uh, she had like the sun and the moon and the 12 stars as her raiment, as her, her glory. And I, I think that, that that imagery in Revelation 12 is picking up on this imagery here. The sun represents Jacob, the moon represents uh, probably at this point, Leah, because Rachel has, has died by this point. And now uh, the 11 stars represent the brothers. And uh, similarly, in, in Revelation 12, that imagery is about this matriarch of Israel who gives birth to the Messiah. So he sees this dream, and then verse 10, when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. And said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So Jacob doesn't get it. But verse 11 tells us, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying 
in mind. Maybe that reminds you of another parent in the Bible. Someone who saw mysterious and wonderful things happen and treasured them up in her heart. You remember Mary being described that way in the early narratives of the Gospel of Luke? Mary, I think that the, the, uh, the evangelist Luke wants people to think of Jacob when he describes Mary because he's establishing connections between Joseph and Jesus. So Joseph's dreams declare that Joseph is the chosen one. And the application of this, if the application in verses 1 through 4 is something like pursue godliness, not your emotions, okay, what are you going to indulge? What are you going to give yourself to? Give yourself to godliness. And if that means you have to be rough with your emotions, pursue godliness, Don't just indulge your emotions. Pursue godliness. The application here in verses 5 through 11 is, I think, Psalm 2, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. See the Lord's anointed and embrace Him. And that brings us to verses 12 through 17 where we get the mission. The mission on which the Father sends the beloved Son. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Now, if if we're just thinking in terms of the book of Genesis, this phrase, here I am, was used repeatedly in a certain chapter. Maybe it already springs to your mind Maybe, maybe just the phrase, here I am, brings a certain chapter to mind. I think, I think it's supposed to. Uh, if you, I mean, just this morning, in my Bible software, I highlighted this phrase, I searched for the phrase, and bingo, there it is. It's like three or four times in Genesis 22. What does that do for us? It forges another connection between Isaac and Joseph, doesn't it? And it recalls the way that God sent Abraham on a mission to take his son up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. And I think that Moses means for his audience to connect these narratives and to start thinking in terms of Isaac and Joseph being similar figures. And so that brings in connotations of the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22 as we think about Joseph now being sent to his brothers here in Genesis 37. Verse 14, so he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Uh, There's another narrative in the Old Testament that I want to comment briefly on before we move on from this. And and maybe you've already thought of this. Maybe you've thought of another occasion where the older brothers have gone off somewhere. And the father sends the younger brother, who's the chosen one, over to check on them. And in the same way that that Joseph's brothers are going to be not too happy to see him on this occasion, David's brothers were not too happy to see him. David's brothers had gone off with Saul David comes asking, where are my brothers? 
And then he hears word of what's promised about Goliath. And he says, what will be done for the man who slays this Philistine? And they tell him, and, and David's brother is ticked. He thinks that David should be back home pasturing the flock. And he thinks he's just out to see the battle. And he answers him harshly. But then the same thing happens with David that happens here with Joseph. Namely, he's exalted to a position of authority and, and, and to reign. And, and I think that the, uh, the, the author of the book of Samuel wants you to think of Joseph. He wants you to think, hey, Moses forged connections between Joseph and Isaac and Moses himself, and I'm now going to forge connections with Isaac and Joseph and Moses and David. Why? Because one is coming who's going to bring all this together. Verse 18. Now we come to the treachery. I think that the treachery here in verses 18 through 30 really corresponds to the dreams in verses 5 through 11. And the central part of the passage is what we just looked at, the mission that Joseph's father sent him on. Verse 18, they saw him from afar. His brothers did. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. I wonder if you've thought about if your own family could co ever come to this kind of place. If, if you've got siblings or, or if you've got children, if you've got brothers or a sister, just reflect for a moment. What would have to happen for me to get to the place or for my siblings to get to the place that they see one of us coming and the response is, what can we do to murder him? That is, that is a, a rage and a, a level of hatred that, that hopefully is hard for us to imagine. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. L literally the text reads, here comes this Lord of the dreams, which is ironic because in the dreams... He saw himself being exalted to lordship. But they're mocking him. He is going to be exalted to lordship as the dreams portrayed. But they're mocking it. They're like, oh yeah, look, the lord of the dreams. The one who was lord in his own dreams. Here he comes. So there's, there's deep irony here as they spitefully, scornfully repudiate God's plan for their lives. God's plan for them, for their good. God's plan for their deliverance. God's plan for their salvation. And they're rejecting it all. They're mocking it. And then in verse 20, maybe you recall where we just heard these words. Come now, let us kill him. We heard those words earlier in the service when Gabe read the passage about Jesus telling a story that's really a summation of the history of Israel. Uh, in that passage, in Mark chapter 12, the opening verses of the passage, Jesus has worded them so that they sound just like Isaiah 5. Remember Isaiah 5? My beloved planted a vineyard on a very fertile hill, and he cleared it of stones, and he built a hedge wall around it, and he put a tower in its midst. This is Isaiah summarizing what the Lord has done for Israel. Jesus just picks all that language up 
And he says, yeah, this is what the Lord did for Israel. And then he started sending you prophets, essentially, is what Jesus says to them. And how did you respond to those prophets? Some of them you beat. Some of them you killed. And then the Lord said, I will respect, they will respect my son. Last of all, I will send them my beloved son. And then Jesus picks up, Mark presents Jesus picking up in Mark 12, the exact Greek phrase from when, when they translated the Hebrew of, of Genesis 37 into Greek, the way that they rendered, the way that those translators rendered this phrase here in verse 20, come now, let us kill him, is the very phrase that Mark puts on the lips of Jesus. Why? I think because Mark wants his audience to see that Jesus forged connections between himself and Joseph. Mark wants people to see that Jesus thought the way they responded to Joseph is the way that they're responding to me. So we might say something like this, the pattern of events that happens in Joseph's life, the designated one to be their savior and Lord is rejected by them, is repeated in the life of Moses. He's, he's marked out by God as the one to be their savior, the one to rule over them, and they reject him. And then it happens again with David. And the fulfillment of that pattern is when God sends his beloved son. Verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. It is amazing that a brother could say this about another brother. And where have we seen it before? We've seen it all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, haven't we? This is exactly the same way that Cain responded to Abel. This is exactly the same way that Esau responded to Jacob. You remember, Esau wanted to put Jacob to death. And then the last phrase here in verse 20, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. We will lie to our father. We will murder our brother and we will lie about what happened to him, to our father. Rightly could it be said to them, you are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. And when he speaks, he lies. And then lastly, and we will see what will become of his dreams. This is, this is the essence of what it means to be satanic. We will see what will become of We will see if Jesus is ever Lord. We will see if Jesus will ever reign. That's essentially what they're saying. We'll see what becomes. Yeah, okay, God is revealed. Yeah, we'll see about that. We'll see if God is the creator of this world. We'll see what will become of those dreams. They're not all in the same place. Verse 21, when Reuben heard it, Reuben is the firstborn. Reuben is a, is a sad and in some ways a sorry character. You'll remember that at the end of chapter 35 and verse 22, he went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. So Reuben is, Reuben is trying to lay claim to the authority in the family, but We'll see how ineffectual he is here, even though he is a good desire that he has. Verse 21, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. 
And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. And uh, Jacob brought to my attention this week that the same Greek verb used here in the translation of this text into Greek appears in Matthew 27, 31, when they've put this purple robe on Jesus and then they strip him of that robe. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And you can, you can almost feel the resentment. The resentment of their father and the way that he has shown this favoritism. The resentment of this brother who thinks he's going to be Lord. Verse 24, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. We started this morning with a call to worship from Psalm 40, where David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard my cry, and he lifted me up out of the pit of destruction. And you can search the narratives of David's life, and we never read of David being in a pit. And, and I, am incl- I, I think that David describes himself as being in a pit because he wants to forge a connection between himself and Joseph. I think that, Je- that when David writes that way in the Psalter, he's saying, I want you to think of Joseph when you, when you read about the experience that I'm telling you about that I had. In verse 25, then they sat down to eat. Maybe that reminds you. Every time I read that line, it makes me think of uh, that statement over in Exodus 32 when, when uh, they make the golden calf and they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And then they sat down to eat and rose up to play. And, and why, would this, why would there be this kind of connection? Well, those are idolaters worshiping that golden calf. These are idolaters. The 11 patriarchs, they're idolaters, harshly, callously rejecting the Lord's anointed. They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Now, at this point, keep a finger. You don't have to turn over and look at Genesis 42, 21, but if you want to do that with me for just a second, I'm just going to read. This is when the brothers come before Joseph, and they don't know it's Joseph. And Joseph is speaking to them through an interpreter. Joseph is now lord over all of Egypt. He's everything, and these paltry nothings are before him. And it's within his power to crush them. And and they think that they're speaking among themselves in their own language. And Joseph is hearing them, and this is what they say in Genesis 42, 21. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul, when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. I think that suggests that from the pit, there are these cries coming to them. That they're, he- they're eating this food, they're looking at these traders, and they're hearing their brothers, their brother's voice. Guys, have mercy on me. Show me some pity here. 
You're not going to leave me here to die, are you? Somebody come pull me up out of this pit, please. What do I need to do to make this right? Well, here come the traitors back in Genesis 37. And in verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, whom we are going to sell into slavery, with the most likely result that we will never see him again. And his father, we know our father loves him. He will never see him again as a result of what we're about to do. But we'll have some cash. And his brothers listened to him. Verse 28, then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up. I think this is another connection with Moses. Exodus 2 verse 10, she named him Moses for she said, I drew him out of the water. It's not the exact same term, but it's really close in Hebrew. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And I think we could say to these guys, that's what your integrity's worth? 20 shekels of silver? That's what your word to your father is worth? 20 shekels? That's what your brother's life is worth? 20 shekels of silver? And when we hear those questions, we ought to start interrogating ourselves. That pleasure that tempts you, that indulgence of your anger, that that giving way to your own frustration or your own fear, or your that's what your integrity's worth? That's what lo- your loyalty to God is worth? That's all? It's never worth it. Lastly, there in verse 28, they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, um, for Moses' audience, um, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, what God has done is he has built a clean realm of life. And the Garden of Eden would be like the living realm because that's where God is. And anything outside the Garden of Eden would be the unclean realm of the dead. And, and I think part of the reason that God says to the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, is because he wants them to make all the dry lands like the clean realm of life. He wants them to extend the boundaries of where he is present with his people to be worshipped by them and to give life to everything. That's, I think that's Adam's job. They blow it, they get kicked out. And now God comes to this guy, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to give you this land. And I think, again, the land is like the Garden of Eden. It's supposed to be the clean realm of life. And Jacob, at the beginning of the passage, is living in the clean realm of life, in the promised land of Canaan. So to go out of the land of promise is to enter into the unclean realm of the dead. There's a sense in which, there's a sense in which for Joseph to be taken to Egypt is for him to be taken out of the presence of God, out of the realm of life. Verse 29, 
when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. This anticipates uh, the grief that they're all going to feel. He tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? It's like he realizes. We're going to have to go home to Jacob. What am I going to do? Where, where am I to go? Verse 31. Before I read this verse, let me just encourage you to think about what's happened before this in the book of Genesis. I, I think that it's so amazing the way that Moses tells this story. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. Back in Genesis 27, Jacob's mother um, said to him, Now therefore, my son, this is Genesis 27, 8, Obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you know what happens in that narrative. Jacob comes to his father with a slaughtered goat and deceives his father. And now Jacob's sons come to their father with this coat dipped in the blood of a slaughtered goat. It's like Moses is saying, that whole eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life thing, that's happening right here. What Jacob did to Isaac is now what his sons are doing to him. But in the in the mercy and the providence of God, even as Jacob suffers the consequences in some ways of his own sins, his sin of deceiving Isaac, his sin of not loving his wife Leah and his sons, his sin of favoritism, for even as he suffers the consequences of the sins, God is bringing about his redemption. Look at how good and merciful the Lord is. And this is the way the Lord works in our lives too. Because it's through, it's through the Lord exposing to us just how sinful and bankrupt and needy we are that we come to a place where we're ready to see, yeah, I really do need King Jesus himself on the cross in my place, and nothing short of that will do it. Verse 32 And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. That's a lie. But then they say, Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it. Now, I'm not going to, I don't want to spend too much on this right now. We'll look at it when we get to chapter 38. But just look over at 38, 25, and 26. This is when Tamar sends the the uh, pledges back to Judah and says, please identify whose these are. And then verse 26, then Judah identified them. And so it's like what happened to Jacob is now happening to Judah. And Moses is weaving these stories together to tie in the, the remarkable way that God is working in these people's lives to bring about their salvation. So back to chapter 37, uh, Jacob identifies the robe. He identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And in this last section, 
in, in verses 31 through 36, we're back to the father and his beloved son and that special coat that he made for him. And here is where I think we see that Jacob has given way to his emotions. Verse 34, Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And I would just submit to you, I I mean, look, grief is awful. And I would not want my beloved son to be killed. And I would not want to be in Jacob's position. But I don't think it's a righteous response to refuse to be comforted by the people in your life. I don't think it's a wise response. And then look at what he goes on to say. He refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. What he's saying is, Joseph has gone to Sheol, and I'm going to Sheol, and I'm going to mourn the rest of the way. Now, Moses has established here an interesting connection between Egypt and Sheol, because we know that Joseph is not in Sheol. Joseph is in Egypt. But this is another one of those, one of those interesting literary signals, I think, that we're to think of Egypt like a tomb, like the place of the dead, from which Joseph, figuratively speaking, is going to be resurrected. And the people of Israel are going to be, figuratively speaking, raised from the dead at the exodus from Egypt. I think that Moses wants his audience to think in these terms. But also, look at how hopeless Jacob looks. I mean, the audience knows Jacob, he's actually alive. And if you've read the rest of the book, you know, Jacob, God is actually doing what Psalm 105 said. Sending a man ahead of you to prepare the way for you. And if, I can, if there's a way to say this gently, Jacob, where's your faith? Jacob, if God gave those dreams to Joseph, saying that his brothers would bow down to him, if God said that, not even death can stop it. Not even death can stop it. But but the reality is, he's not dead. I think that Moses shows us this to say to us, never give up hope. Always believe. Always wait. Always trust. I mean, how many reasons does Jacob have to be discouraged? At least 12 of them, right? I mean, 11 sons who do this to the beloved son. My goodness, this is awful. But look at what the Lord does through the course of the book. We are going to see an amazing transformation take place, most prominently in the life of Judah. Judah, in this chapter, he's an opportunist. He's a lover of money, and he'd rather have 20 shekels of silver than his brother's presence. That's where Judah is. In a few chapters, Judah is going to look like perhaps the most Christ-like character in the entirety of the book of Genesis. That's the God of the Bible. So if Jacob is ready to mourn for the rest of his life, we need to say to him, Jacob, hang on. It's just a few chapters. I know it's bad. I'm not telling you to act like it's not bad. I'm not telling you not to address it. 
But Jacob, there's always hope. There's always hope. At the end of verse 35 there, thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Just a couple of more comments here on the way that what happened, what Jacob did to Isaac is what his sons do to him. I think it, in addition to that whole eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing, I think that we can, we can also reference things like Jesus saying, with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And I would just, we, we all, I mean, I've just been really hard on Jacob. That measure is going to be measured back to me. We all, we all need to adopt a humble posture and, and a readiness to, to love, a readiness to forgive. But mainly, I think what Moses wants to see here is that in this frowning providence, God's smiling face is preparing a preview of the Lord Jesus. It's a preview of the Lord Jesus that's going to result in the salvation of these very people. It's a preview that when it's fulfilled, will bring about the salvation of the whole world. God's at work for Jacob. God's at work for Joseph. God's at work for Judah. And we want to look at the preview of Christ. And we want to look at what God has done for us. And we want to rest in our Savior and trust the Father's providence. Let's pray together. Father, again, I pray that you would use this passage to give us the wisdom that enables us to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds knowing that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And perseverance produces steadfastness. And steadfastness produces hope. Lord, we don't know all the ways that you're at work right now among us. We pray that you'd help us to trust you. And we pray that you would hold us fast and keep us to the end. In Christ's name, amen.